Christ was born to save, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 The creator of the universe comes to earth as a baby born for sacrifice, to be a sin offering to the Lord, to make atonement, and to be the propitiation for our sins. Picture a slave market. We were chained and bound by our own sinful nature. But Christ, our Redeemer, comes into the marketplace and bought us out of slavery with his costly wounds of love through his blood that flowed profusely at the cross. What is that worth to you? Do you trust in things? For my worth is not in what I own or lack thereof. Do you trust in your own strength to get you through? Because we are never strong enough or good enough. Our strength does not come from flesh and bone, but has its source in Christ alone. Like David, it was not about winning or losing, wealth or might, when he boldly went out against Goliath, but was about the Lord who gave him strength, power, and the victory. It was not about skill or fame when the Lord chose the shepherd boy, David, to be king over all Israel. And through his offspring that I have my hope, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is my redeemer, my greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul, I will trust in him no other for my soul is satisfied in him alone.
as we sing it came upon a midnight clear
In the early church, Jesus' followers faced persecution. The disciples told others about Jesus, but some people did not like what they were saying. Those people mistreated the believers because of their faith, and many believers were forced to leave their homes and go to different cities. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote a letter to encourage them. Peter was a leader in the church, and he wanted to help these believers be faithful in hard times. Peter said, Praise God. He is merciful and given us new life. We have hope because of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Peter reminded believers that because we are children of God, we have blessings in heaven that cannot be taken away or destroyed. We rejoice in this promise, even though we face suffering in this life. When hard times happen, God is honored as we trust him by faith. Peter also wrote, Hope in Jesus and be holy. God is your Father. Live in a way that shows Him respect. Peter reminded the believers that before they trusted in Jesus, they lived however they wanted. Jesus gave His life to save them so they could have a better life, true life, through His Word. Peter said, This world is not your home. Do not live like people around you who do wrong things. Instead, do what is good. Live as servants of God. Show love and respect to everyone. Others will see your good works and give glory to God. Jesus gave us an example to follow. He suffered for us, dying for our sins so that we could live for what is right. Before we were like lost sheep, now Jesus is our shepherd. The Bible says Christians will suffer for following Jesus. Peter encouraged believers who faced persecution for their faith. Through suffering, God can make us more like His Son. Jesus gives us hope and true life so we can live joyfully for Him, even in hard times. There are the lights. <laughs> Good morning, church. I want to welcome you here, those that you are in the building with us, and Welcome to those who are with us online this morning as well. Merry Christmas to you. And we look forward to closing the book on 2021 and opening a new chapter, or closing the book on 2020 and opening a new chapter of 2021 here at the end of this week. And so I wish you a happy new year as well. There's some exciting news I'd like to share with you this morning before we dive into our text. On the 17th of January... Coming up in just a few Sundays, we are anticipating a full restart of our children's ministries on Sunday morning. That is both during the worship service and during the ABF ministry hour. And so we are very close. If you are with us, whether online or in the building, and you volunteered in our children's ministries before, now's not the time to take a break. We need all the help that we can get, and so I would encourage you to step forth. We still need help with preschoolers. And so if you are able to work with preschoolers, they're very unique and interesting to work with, but perhaps you're specially gifted to work with that age, we would love to have you uh, helping at either our worship service and or during our ABF hour. We're also going to be beginning a live stream of our Berean ABF class, which is going to start the first 
Sunday of the new year, January 3rd. And so uh, for those of you that are going to be with us online, you'll be able to have the opportunity now to follow along with one of our ABF classes online as well. And as we begin the new year, we'll be starting another sermon series on January 10th. We'll begin a series called Love Builds Up, and we are going to be going through the entire book of 1 Corinthians together as a congregation, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so that will start on the 10th of January, and after we finish the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we'll go back to the beginning and work our way through them. This is our last Sunday together in the book of Ruth. And it's also our last Sunday for our memory verse, which has been from chapter 4 in the book of Ruth. And we can say it for a final time together as a congregation this morning. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Ruth 4 14. And I wonder, this past week, how many folks you saw or came into contact with? This has been an interesting year. It's been kind of a year where we haven't had a ton of regular fellowship. And indeed, the way that we've fellowshiped and interacted with each other, whether it be in our families, our schools, or our communities, or even our churches, has changed maybe just a little bit. But I wonder for the holidays, How many of us gathered together with our family? I'm thinking whether it was live and in person or whether it was by some form of technology, most of us probably enjoyed a few quiet moments with family members. Families are important and they're significant. And it has actually been said and reminded that God established the family before he established the nation Israel or the church. And indeed, families are the bedrock of any strong and healthy community. And you know, not every family looks the same or acts the same or functions the same. As many of us are reminded each year as we gather with our extended families and we come into contact with family members that do things a little bit different than we do. Uh, Maybe even to our disdain sometimes. The Lenhart's family heritages and traditions are going to be different than the Davis family heritage and traditions, and the Hubbard and the Herder family heritage and traditions. And this is good, and there's reason for it. And though there are differences between families, there are also similarities. Many families worship in a similar fashion. All families are able to use tools to track their heritage and genealogies at least back a few generations, maybe many generations. And all families are made up of people. And you know what the reality of people is? We're all born into sin. And therefore, there are no perfect families. Every family on some level or another, has had to deal with the brokenness and heartache that comes as a consequence of living in a sin-filled world. Our families 
our family trees, our family heritage. They are indeed testimonies of God's grace. And so we come to the end of our study of Ruth today. And the book of Ruth, for those of you that read ahead, ends with a genealogy. Genealogies are opportunities for us to see the grace and the goodness of God. And these texts are important. It's important that when we come to a genealogy in the Bible, we don't just skip over it. For we affirm the words of Paul to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy. All scripture, even genealogies, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. And so if all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is useful, then the genealogy that concludes the book of Ruth is useful for us and to us as the people of God today. When we study these texts, we are affirming these words that Paul spoke to Timothy. And still, we may ask a fair question this morning before we enter this text. Why are genealogies included in our Bibles? I think it's a fair question. I think it's a good question. Perhaps it's one that you haven't explored before. What do these genealogies teach us about God? Why are they important? And especially as it relates to our study of Ruth, why is this genealogy found at the conclusion of Ruth's narrative still important for us today? As I said before, these are not texts to skip over. They are texts that are packed with information. And the information is regarding real people who really existed in space and time history for God's intended purposes and design. When we find a genealogy in the Bible, we find evidence of the veracity of the scriptures. Real people. Doing things and living together in real places. Places that existed in real time. That held the real events that the book of Ruth testify to. And as with all family genealogies, the genealogy at the end of our text today is clear and direct evidence of the reality that we serve a God whose grace cannot be measured. And so as we unpack the genealogy at the end of Ruth, we're going to explore this morning the immeasurable riches of God's grace given to us. Grace that we have not worked hard for or earned, but has been given freely. Today we will encounter four individuals within the line of King David who deserve our attention as resounding testimonies to God's amazing grace. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 4 this morning, looking at the final number of verses. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And we're going to work through verse 22. Before we do, let's pray. Father, indeed, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this genealogy. 
at the end of the book of Ruth. We're thankful that it is a testimony of your goodness and your grace. We're thankful that the names that we find in this genealogy are names of real people who you created, who existed for your purpose and your design. And as we look at this genealogy today and break out the account of four specific individuals within it, we pray that you would help us to understand the measures of your grace. Lord, might these individuals be a testimony, a clear and resounding testimony of how much of a grace-filled God we serve. Thank you for these words today. May you work through this time we have together. Help us to grow in our love for each other and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The generations of Perez. And we have seen this name, Perez, already mentioned once in the book of Ruth. If you were with us a number of weeks ago, you remember that we actually covered this verse that talked about Perez. It's Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. The women and the men at the gates were blessing Boaz and his union with Ruth. And they said, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And the birth of Perez, if we know this testimony, it happens at, under rather inauspicious circumstances. Perez's father's name is Judah. His mother's name is Tamar. And there is a problem here. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. This is a problem. What happened is that Judah's firstborn son, whose name was Ur, the Bible tells us in Genesis 38, was wicked. And he was put to death by the Lord. And so Ur's widow, Tamar, found herself alone. And the principle of the kinsman redeemer that we've studied earlier in the book of Ruth is at play. And so Ur's younger brother, Onan, is to step in and he is now to fill the role of the husband to Tamar. And initially he agrees to do so. But he knows this. That if he performs the duty of a husband to Tamar, and if Tamar becomes pregnant by him, then any son that is born to Tamar does not actually belong to Onan, but belongs to Ur. And so he performs his duty, the Bible describes it, wickedly. Wickedly. He doesn't do what he is supposed to do. And you can go on and read of the details of it. They're rather harrowing. But he essentially uses Tamar for his own gratification. His character 
is contrasted to the character of Boaz in the book of Ruth. And for his behavior, the Lord puts Onan to death. And so Ur has died, Onan has died, and Tamar is widowed once again. And Judah goes to Tamar and says, I have a younger son. His name is Shelah. Can you wait until he is older? And then I will give you him to marry. Well, Shelah grows up. And Judah's wife dies. And now he's left with just his son, Shelah. And do you think that Judah wants to give Shelah to Tamar when his first two sons had been with her and died? He doesn't. And he doesn't do it. He actually withholds his son from Tamar. And Tamar, she is desperate for a son to carry on her legacy. So those of you that know the narrative, you know what she does. She goes down and she disguises herself. She hears that Judah is coming. And she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she tricks Judah into sleeping with her, and she becomes pregnant with Judah's son, who would become named Perez. And and he doesn't even know that she's pregnant. The matter becomes public, and the scheme of Tamar is revealed, and as the matter is brought to light in the public square, Judah is called to testify What has happened here? How has this woman become pregnant? And he couldn't hide. You see, because when he went and when he slept with her, she had taken his signet, his signatory. She had his sign. So there was no way that he could hide that she was pregnant with his son. And so put in a position in the public square where he was exposed and the sin that he committed was laid out before everyone, there was no place he could go. And he says this, Judah identified them, talking of his signatories that she had. And he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. I mean, and if all of this was not a difficult reality in and of itself, I mean, this is a pretty messed up story that happens in the book of Genesis. We come to find out that Tamar is actually pregnant with twins. She's going to have twins. And listen to what happens at the time of her labor, starting in verse 27 of Genesis 38. When the time of her labor came, There were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zara. Friends, out of the mess of this terrible circumstance and situation, 
Look at what God is able to do. He's able to produce life and beauty even in the midst of these crooked and perverse behaviors. God hates the sin of man. But let's not fool ourselves today in believing that the sin of man is able to thwart the plans of God because it is not. By grace, God is able to call light from darkness. The grace of God is evidenced in Perez's account because God allows the line of Judah to continue through Perez. While sin is threatening to destroy the line, we see the hand of God protecting and nurturing the seed that would one day produce the Messiah. And so from Perez comes Hezron and Hezron Ram and Ram Abinadab and and Noshin. And that brings us to the second character we want to explore and unpack today. His name is Salmon. And no, this is not a fishtail. Salmon's name is found in other places in our Bible, but we might miss it because of the spelling and the way that the Bible shows his name in other places. So Salmon's name can end with an O-N or it can end with an M-A, pronounced Salmon. And so you will find his name in Chronicles, but you'll also find his name in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon was the husband of a surprise character in the line of Christ. And Salmon, father of Boaz, by Rahab. Salmon's wife was Rahab. And if you remember the narrative from the book of Joshua, Rahab's inclusion in the line of Christ is a significant testimony of God's grace for what was Rahab's profession. She was a prostitute. Refreshing our minds, we remember that Joshua had sent spies. You remember Joshua chapter 2. He had sent spies into the city of Jericho. Jericho was the city that was surrounded by this massively huge, impenetrable wall. By God's grace, the spies found a way into the city. But it was not safe for them to be there. They found temporary asylum in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. And the king of Jericho finds out that spies have entered his his city and he actually sends his soldiers to go find them, to seek them out. And so Rahab hid the men in stalks of flax. Now this is a picture of flax that you see on the screen and you can see that it's a lot thinner, it's a lot finer. Flax was actually used back in those days to make fine linens and clothing. And so it should serve no surprise to us that Rahab, a prostitute, has material on her roof that she would have used to make fine clothes and linen. And so the soldiers had been sent to go look for the spies and Rahab diverts the soldiers and sends them off in the wrong direction to pursue the spies. After she does this, you remember the account, she lets the spies down through the window of her home 
with a, root, with a, with a rope. And you see, what, what we see here is that Rahab sees for herself a window of opportunity. She knows what's going to happen. And she actually sees an opportunity to, one, protect her own family, but two, to finally free herself from the life of prostitution that she had been practicing. And so before finding safe passage for the spies, Rahab actually goes to them. If you remember this in Joshua chapter 2, and she acknowledges her faith in God. She acknowledges that she knows that God is going to destroy the city of Jericho. It's a pretty interesting thing. If you remember, she makes a pact with them. And it's a pact that would preserve and protect Rahab and her family should the wall of Jericho fall and Joshua's armies prevail. And later in the book, we know this, later in the book of Joshua, what happens to Jericho? The armies march around the city seven times. The, the ram's horn blows. And what happens to the wall? Falls down, right? And Joshua's armies go in and they ransack the city. And they take the city captive. But look at Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. The promise that was made to Rahab to protect her family. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab is spared. And not only is she spared, later she marries Salmon. And by her faith, the life of this prostitute is completely transformed even to the point where she finds herself in the genealogy of our Messiah. Furthermore, isn't it interesting that the legacy of Rahab reverberates outside of the genealogies found in Matthew and Luke, as Rahab is mentioned two other times in the New Testament. First, in Hebrews, by faith, in the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, in the hallmark of faith examples, Rahab's name. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We know that one is justified by faith alone, but that works or fruit are the divine evidences of the reality of that faith. Later in the book of James, Rahab is mentioned again in James chapter 2, verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? What is amazing, friends? about Rahab's narrative is that Rahab had already believed on God before the spies arrived at her doorstep. They were simply confirmation of what she already knew was coming. Rahab's faith is motivating her behavior in Joshua chapter 2. Her works serve to prove the evidence of her faith. 
And so again, friends, we are confronted with the grace of a God who went before the spies into Jericho to prepare and transform the heart of a lowly prostitute named Rahab, reminding us that there is no one outside of the reach of God's grace. There's also a common thread that ties together Tamar and Rahab, isn't there? A few common threads, actually, when you look at the Old Testament. Not only did both of these women participate in prostitution, but both were also Canaanites. Both of these women. And the Canaanites were the enemies of Israel. Further testimony to the grace of God. Our God finds his people dead in trespasses and sins. According to the ways of this world, he draws those who are enemies of his plans and purposes and subdues us by his love. In his grace, he draws those who are opposed to him unto himself, adopting as his own children those who were once at enmity with him. And so together we have Salmon the Israelite and Rahab the Canaanite from the city of Jericho. And they have a child and the child's name is Boaz. Beautiful testimony of God's grace. And in our study of Ruth we have spent a great deal of time covering the character of Boaz. Certainly remember he is somebody different. He is somebody set apart. In, in our English Bibles, the book of Ruth flows right after the book of Judges. And we've said this before, but it, it's worth saying it again. Boaz's character is contrasted to many of the men we meet in the book of Judges. He was a man of God. He was a leader in his community. And in a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes... Boaz's example was one of faithful dependence on God. But Boaz's wife, Ruth, the heroine of this narrative that bears her name, she was a Moabite. And for Boaz, that could have been, could have been a gigantic problem. And several weeks back, you remember at the very beginning of our study, we traced the origins of the Moabite people all the way back to Lot and his daughters in the book of Genesis. You remember the despicable act of Lot's daughters getting him drunk and then participating in various indiscretions with him and finding themselves pregnant. And one of his daughters would name her child Moab and she would become the father of the Moabite people. And the Moabites, if you remember their testimony in the Old Testament, they were the people who rose up against the Hebrews as they were leaving Egypt. Remember, they hired a, a, a guy named Balaam to curse the Hebrew people as they were leaving. And because of their hatred of the Hebrew people and their sin against them, the Lord included them in this statement. Isn't this interesting? In the law, in the book of Deuteronomy. Check this out. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. 
And here, friends, is something that's rather significant as it relates to this command. It just so happens when we look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke that we come to realize that from Abraham to Salmon, the father of Boaz, there were ten generations. Ten. Boaz was the eleventh generation. And when Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, Ruth's identity moves from Ruth the Moabite to Ruth the Israelite. And while we have spent a great deal of time considering how Boaz was set apart and different from the men we met in Judges, we have not yet considered how Ruth was so set apart from her Moabite people who were enemies of God. And you know, there is a clue to this, friends, but it's not in our English Bibles. There's a clue to how this is different. It's actually in the Hebrew Old Testament that's known as the Tanakh or the Mikra. In our English Bibles, as we said earlier, Ruth follows the book of Judges. And so naturally, we take time exploring the visible contrast between the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. However, in the Hebrew Bible... The book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. And if you remember the last chapter of Proverbs, it is a chapter that actually defines a woman who fears the Lord. And so if we were studying the book of Ruth from this perspective, we might have actually taken more time to compare how Ruth demonstrates many of the qualities that are defined At the end of the book of Proverbs. Ruth is a wife who was sovereignly chosen by God. Completely tuned and fitted for Boaz. And as Boaz is a man of exemplary character. So too is his wife Ruth a woman of exemplary character. Listen. Listen to the echoes of Ruth and Boaz's love story. Ringing throughout Proverbs chapter 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. Verses 16 to 18. She considers a field. And buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself in strength. And makes her arms strong. You remember how much weight Boaz put on Ruth to take back to Naomi? She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Ruth chapter 3. Her lamp does not go out at night. Again in verse 23. Her husband is known at the gates. Do you remember the opening of Ruth chapter 4? Boaz is at the gates and what's he doing? He's commanding everybody. Everyone's listening to him. He is well known. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And finally, at the end of Proverbs 31, this blessing that has echoes of the same blessing spoken at the gates by the people who had gathered to witness the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works be praised in the gates. 
And so, friends, from this perspective, as we enter the book of Ruth, we find a woman in Ruth who meets the qualifications of a Proverbs 31 woman who fears the Lord. And guess what? She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite woman. However, Ruth would become an Israelite wife, mother, a woman who feared the Lord, one who was fit for a king. Her line would be a royal line and would soon produce a king through whom God would establish the nation of Israel forever. And that brings us to the fourth character in our genealogy today, King David. Look at the end of verse 21 and then verse 22. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The baby born to Boaz and Ruth, Obed would be the grandfather of the king we know so well, King David. And here again, we step back and look at this whole genealogy and realize that in its 10 generations, it's both looking back at what God had done and looking forward to what God is going to do. The first five generations in the genealogy all predate Moses, while the last five generations in this genealogy come after Moses. It's a genealogy that also prepares us to enter the book of 1 Samuel where David, the son of Jesse, would soon be anointed as king over Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And while David is a king, unlike Saul, he is also a man and a king who demonstrates his own flaws and imperfections, doesn't he? Thus again, highlighting the grace of God in the line of Christ. David commits adultery. We all know this. He doesn't just commit adultery, but after he commits adultery, he tries to make a wrong right with another wrong and conspires to have the husband of Bathsheba murdered. Throughout his leadership, he does not always honor God with his words and his actions. And yet, God finds David to be what? A man after his own heart. David acknowledges his sin and he repents and the Lord is quick to restore him and he does this frequently. We see clear evidence of it in Psalm chapter 51. And in spite of the failures that marked his own leadership of Israel and that had devastating effects, folks, we know David's family was a mess. In fact, in, Berea, in the Berean class, we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel. And it's going to become painstakingly clear through the end of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel how much of a mess David's family was. And yet God's grace was upon him and upon his family. 
Look at this covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel. It's known as the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant that would establish the throne of David forever. Listen to what he says. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You remember Solomon built it. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love. Remember the theme that we've been studying this book under steadfast love in a broken world. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God comes through. He keeps his promises. And as we saw last week, towards the end of Ruth chapter 4, the Redeemer who was promised, would one day be born. And he was born in the city of David, as Boaz and Ruth had a son, and he was born again later in the city of David, as Mary and Joseph had a son whose name was Jesus. And the genealogies of the Bible, friends, they're important because they testify to the grace and the mercy of God. They are evidence of his steadfast love shown among broken people living in a world that's been marred with the effects of sin. And this indeed has been the subtitle of our study. Steadfast love in a broken world. And indeed, the love of God is as steadfast today. Friends, it's unchanging. It's as steadfast today as it was in the time of Ruth. And as we've studied this text together, one of the commentators that I've come across that's done a really amazing job with this book had an incredible way of summarizing it that I wanted to share with you today. His name is Ian Duguid, and he says this, quote, Why would the Lord Jesus, who could have chosen to be descended from anyone at all, choose to be descended from such a soiled line? End quote. And then he answers it. Quote, 
As Jesus himself put it, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue sinners, people like his own ancestors, people like us. When he came to seek and save that which was lost, he didn't come garbed in special protective clothing like a scientist suited up to handle a bubonic plague in a laboratory. At the beginning of his life, Jesus came into this world naked, unprotected, not separated from sinners, but descended from a long line of them. During his lifetime, he was likewise surrounded by sinners. This was the way that people knew Jesus, as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And if he kept shocking company while he was alive, he also kept scandalous company when he died. He was flanked by two thieves at his crucifixion. Thus, Jesus went out of this world the same way that he arrived, naked and unprotected. Why would the Lord of the universe expose himself to such pain and humiliation? It is because that is how he would save sinners. He would not save them by staying at a safe distance from them, but only by coming alongside of them and identifying with them. In order to save us, Jesus became our friend and ultimately performed the greatest act of friendship there is, laying down his life for us. Jesus gave up his life and went down into death so that he might pay the price that our sins had earned. End quote. Friends, we are all born bound as slaves. On the train of sin, we are like dead passengers clutching our tickets to the only destination to which we can be heading, and that is hell. Dry bones, skeletons with no power or any ability within ourselves to change the course that we are on. Then Jesus came down. Sent from God, he boarded the train. He breathed life into our dry bones. He tore the tickets away from our death grips. He ripped them up and he took us in his arms from the train of death and set us on a new path, one of life and light, one of abundance and mercy and compassion and grace. The grace of God gave to us that which we did not deserve, the free gift of salvation found only in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And isn't it amazing? Like Naomi and Ruth, who came to Bethlehem empty. Like Joseph and Mary, who followed many years later into Bethlehem empty. We find that our God is a God who is able to take that which is empty and make it full. And overflowing. He saves us, he fills us with his spirit, he calls us to new life in him. Friends, our team is going to come this morning and lead us in a final song that we're going to sing together. And I love what Dave said before we sang, 
the last Christmas hymn of this year, and he's absolutely right. We don't know when the Lord will return. It could be this year. And that could be the last Christmas song that we ever share in together. And if you're here today in this building and you've never made a commitment to follow Christ with your life, if he's not your personal Lord and Savior, if you're with us at home today and you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, he is not your personal Lord and Savior, then why wait till 2021? Do it today. Commit your life to Christ today and you will find the life and the light and the transformation that he promises. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father God, we are indeed thankful for the narrative of Ruth, for her story, for how it presses us forth into the narrative of your son, Jesus Christ, and how there's great hope in both. That you are a God who keeps his promises, that you are a God who protects and preserves and nurtures his people, that you are a God who is with us. You have not abandoned us or left us, but you're together with us, bearing with us in great patience as we live in sin, as we're dead in our trespasses and sins. You save us from darkness and call us to light. And Father, this morning, if there's any within the sound of my voice who have not yet known the saving power of your son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that today would be the day, not tomorrow, not the beginning of 2021. Might your spirit convict and compel their hearts in a way that even right now they're praying and committing their life to you. You are the true and only Messiah. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth that you shall reign forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we sing, He shall reign forevermore.
today, just a few housekeeping items. We, we will have some ABFs available this morning if you'd like to stay and participate. Uh, I believe that one is in Lefevre Hall, one is here, and, and Oasis will be meeting as well today. Also, uh, the offering boxes are in the back, where if you're with us online, you're certainly welcome to give online as well. And ushers are going to dismiss today from the back to the front. And if you could slip your mask on as you move through the building uh, and move through the building briskly, that would be appreciated. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week in Jesus, and we'll see you next week. Take care.